I wrote that up there for, that's for later, so I don't forget, because I'm in the habit lately, it seems, of forgetting. And I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. This is the Krause kitchen sink area. Um, and uh, this week, there was a day I was standing at the sink doing hand wash dishes. My wife's in school, so I try to pick up a little bit of slack. Um, and as I was preparing to do some hand wash dishes there, all of a sudden I heard this humming sound, and what I thought was like a, a switch turning on and off. And it was driving me crazy. And I thought, well, maybe something's up with the fridge. So our refrigerator's right here. I open it up, listen carefully. No, that, wa that wasn't sound. Okay, maybe I'm hearing things. I go back to the sink, start washing, and all of a sudden it starts up again. Well, right over here, a couple steps, is our pantry, and there's a door to it. So I open up the door, turn on the light, listen carefully. Nothing. What, am I losing it? I know I'm getting older, but okay. Shut the door, go back to the sink, and once you know it, once I start, it happens again. Well, right next to our pantry is the door to our garage. So I open that up, turn the lights on. Maybe I left something on in there. Listen carefully. Nothing. I'm getting pretty fed up and frustrated by now because you know how much I love to do the dishes, so I want to get back to them. And as I'm standing there, it does it one more time, and all of a sudden it dawns on me what an idiot I am. What I didn't tell you was right before I got ready to do the hand wash dishes, I loaded the dishwasher and turned it on, and it was going through its startup cycles. Okay, why is it that it's so easy to forget the simplest things? I had done that maybe 90 seconds before I actually got to the sink to start washing dishes, and I had completely blanked on the fact that I had started this machine next to me, and it was doing its thing, and I totally blanked on it. Why is it that the simplest things in life can just slip away from our memories? Well, it turns out that there's a very human reason why we forget. Think back to a really vivid memory. Got it? Okay, now try to remember what you had for lunch three weeks ago. That second memory probably isn't as strong. But why not? Why do we remember some things and not others? And why do memories eventually fade? Let's look at how memories form in the first place. When you experience something, like dialing a phone number, the experience is converted into a pulse of electrical energy that zips along a network of neurons. Information first lands in short-term memory, where it's available from anywhere from a few seconds to a couple of minutes. It's then transferred to long-term memory through areas such as the hippocampus and finally to several storage regions across the brain. Neurons throughout the brain communicate at dedicated sites called synapses using specialized neurotransmitters. If two neurons communicate repeatedly, a remarkable thing happens. The efficiency of communication between them increases. This process, called long-term potentiation, is considered to be a mechanism by which memories are stored long-term. But how do some memories get lost? Age is one factor. As we get older, synapses begin to falter and weaken, affecting how easily we can retrieve memories. Scientists have several theories about what's behind this deterioration. From actual brain shrinkage, the hippocampus loses 5% of its neurons every decade. For a total loss of 20% by the time you're 80 years old, to the drop in the production of neurotransmitters, like acetylcholine, which is vital to learning and memory. These changes seem to affect how people retrieve stored information. Age also affects our memory-making abilities. 
Memories are encoded most strongly when we're paying attention, when we're deeply engaged and when information is meaningful to us. Mental and physical health problems, which tend to increase as we age, interfere with our ability to pay attention and thus act as memory thieves. Another leading cause... Okay, the video actually goes on to make uh, several more points. There's several more reasons why we tend to forget things. One is uh, chronic stress. Isolation can actually make you very forgetful because your, your brain isn't engaged the way it ordinarily is. This is a big one, uh, a serotonin deficiency. Uh, that, that could be physiological, maybe it's something uh, in your sleep cycle or other things. And I would love to say that I've had a really stressful week or, or some of this other stuff. I'm just going to have to cop to the fact that my hippocampus is not as young and virile as it once was. So that's why I think I'm uh, starting to forget these little piddly things. Now, as, as struggling and, and tragic as forgetting can sometimes be, it's actually not as bad as we think it is. Uh, medical science is becoming to understand the brain more and more, and they've actually discovered that being forgetful or forgetting things can actually be a very good thing. It can actually improve the efficiency of your, your brain because there's certain facts or figures that don't really stick in your minds, and so your brain just dumps them, in a sense, making more room. We know how this works spiritually, too. The ability to forget something or to let go of something, uh, some traumatic event that has spiritually harmed us or, or maybe there's something that has happened that has stood in the way of our relationship with God or our relationship with one another. Um, those are to be forgiven according to God's word and, and sometimes they're easy to forget and sometimes not. But it seems like the further away we can get from them, the less of a, a painful memory it is for us. We have to be honest, this isn't the brain as God created it. Uh, the brain was originally perfect, it would have remembered things perfectly, it would have known things perfectly, and yet it seems that God has taken this consequence of what sin has done to our brains and actually turned it to a good thing. That as time goes on, it, it's the good memories that tend to come forward, and, and unless it's truly traumatic, the bad memories tend to fade away. At this point, you're going, okay, that's a great uh, uh, a lesson on my brain, but what does that have to do with our study? What does that have to do with Advent? What does that have to do with the new beginning? Well, actually, it has everything to do with that because today's lesson comes from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, who is often referred to as the gospel of the Old Testament. And you know that of all of the prophets' records, Isaiah speaks some of the most beloved and memorable gospel nuggets, like in uh, Isaiah 7, where he talks about the virgin birth. Or you flip the other side of the coin in Isaiah 53, where he talks about our suffering Savior. Isaiah, of all the prophets, maybe as clearly as any other, spells out God's plan of salvation that gives us hope and help in our day-to-day -day lives. But it goes further than that. Today's lesson is actually one of the lesser-known gospel nuggets from Isaiah, and it's all about forgetting. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. Now many of us are familiar with Isaiah. Others of us maybe only have a passing, working knowledge of him. So let's begin by reminding ourselves maybe some of the things we've forgotten or learn anew who this unique amazing gospel prophet of God actually was. During the time of the prophet Isaiah, the people of Israel, God's chosen people, were living in sin. They had forgotten all that God had done for them. 
they did not keep God's commandments and instead prayed to false gods. God chose a messenger to go tell the people to stop sinning and turn back to God. He chose a man by the name of Isaiah to deliver this message. Isaiah loved God and was sad for the people of Israel. So God showed Isaiah a dream where God told him exactly what to say. In this dream, Isaiah saw God sitting on his exalted throne with angels all around him. In the dream, God spoke, and his voice was so loud, it shook the building and filled it with smoke. Then an angel came to Isaiah and touched his lip with a glowing coal. This meant that Isaiah's sins were forgiven. Then, in the dream, God asked, Whom shall I send? Who will go for me to tell the people of Israel my message? Here I am. Send me, Isaiah replied. It is a difficult task, God responded. The people won't listen, so I am going to punish them. But I am also going to give you a message of hope. I will not punish them forever. The next day, Isaiah began to tell the people what God said. Day in and day out, he told the people the sad news. You have sinned. God will punish you. Stop sinning and obey God. But no, the people didn't return to God. Instead, they laughed and made fun of Isaiah. And then it all happened. Isaiah told the truth, and the people of Israel did not listen. God took his protection away from them, and the Babylonians conquered Israel. They carried away thousands of Israelites and made them into slaves. The Israelites were dragged away from their own country on ropes and chains. It was too late. God's punishment had started. The people were discouraged and depressed. But Isaiah did not forget that God also gave him a message of hope. This time, the people listened to Isaiah. Hear the good news, he told them. A king is coming, not a sinful one like you're used to. This king will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This was exactly what the people had longed for. Deliverance was coming. Someday, this king would break onto the scene and make everything right again. His name would be Jesus. The video does a pretty good job of summarizing Isaiah uh, and his prophecy, and it really focuses on chapter 6 where God calls him into the ministry. There's that vision, that dream of being in the temple. Well, it doesn't tell us some specific things we should understand about Isaiah and his writing that it would be most helpful for a lesson today. And he's the only prophet where it works out this way that his book, actually it was two different scrolls, was divided. Um, and chapters 1 through 39 is uh, ministry that takes place and events that take place during the lifetime of Isaiah the prophet. Whereas chapters 40 through 66 were future events, things that actually happened after Isaiah lived 
and during the time of his ministry. See, we don't know exactly when Isaiah was born, the, the year, and we don't know exactly when he died, but you heard in the Old Testament lesson that he does fall under the category of four specific kings of Judah. And even if we take that at its bare minimum, you can see that Isaiah served for a very long time. And he had the challenging job of going to God's own people to warn them of this coming judgment because of their rebellion. And right up front, God says, you know what? They're just not going to listen. Now, there's an interesting thing that also occurs in the book of uh, Isaiah, and it happens in chapter 39. It serves as a bridge from the first scroll into the second scroll, and it's where we're introduced to the coming events of the Babylonian captivity. You might be aware of that during Isaiah's time as a prophet, there was a very good king, Hezekiah, the last one he served under, who became deathly ill. God sent Isaiah to Hezekiah saying, put your affairs in order, your life is going to end. Isaiah leaves, Hezekiah prays, God, please, I, there's so much more work to do to serve you in this kingdom. And so God gave him 15 more years to live. After news of that spread, the king of the Babylonians sent a delegation to Judah with gifts as a way to congratulate Hezekiah on recovering from this illness. But unfortunately, Hezekiah became a bit prideful. And even though he was a good king, for a moment he had a lapse and he decided to show off the treasury of the kingdom to this delegation and he was kind of strutting around showing his prowess as one of the good kings of Judah and then there's this message that comes in chapter 39 that is a reflection of the first scroll of Isaiah and leads to the events of the second scroll. God says I have been warning this kingdom again and again and again I've been pleading with you that this judgment is coming if you do not turn from your sinful ways and if you do not once again return to me as your true God, you've broken our covenant, the promise I made with you and the promise you made with me. And unless you turn back from your sinful ways, this judgment will come. And Hezekiah, as faithful as he was to the Lord, his kingdom, if you will, ends with these words echoing in Judah's ears. This judgment is on its way. Now this is how the two scrolls work out. The first one is mostly dark because of the coming judgment and the warning of sin. The second scroll speaks about the captivity, but it also offers that message of hope. The word that should ring through Judah's ears as they heard it was restoration. You will go into captivity, but it will not last forever. I will restore you one day. It is from this second section that our little gospel nugget from Isaiah is recorded, and God says, there's something I want you to forget. Sometimes God does amazing things in Scripture, especially when you have the ability to go back and actually look at it as it was originally written. There is an amazing answer to the question that begs to be asked. So what does God want his people of Judah to forget? Well, one answer is derived contextually, and the other one is derived grammatically. First, the contextual lesson, because if you go back to the verses right before our lesson, you read these words where God is talking about the Exodus from the land of Egypt. Hundreds of years earlier, uh, the Egyptians had enslaved the nation of Judah, and God powerfully, through Moses, releases them from that captivity. And God says, I want you to forget about that. Now, now he's not saying, I don't want you to ever think of it again. I don't want you to erase it completely from your memory banks, and that's explained by the second phrase. Don't dwell on it. You see, he still wanted them to celebrate the Passover every year, to commemorate this amazing miracle that God did for his people. This was still to be part of their worship life. But he says, I want you to shift your focus from that 
to a greater restoration. Then he goes on to say, there's going to be a release from your captivity in Babylon. And as far as two human memories go, this one yet needing to take place, what God says through Isaiah is, this will not hold a candle to this. You might think, well, how, how can God even say that? That was a pretty big deal. That was very miraculous, parting the Red Sea, those millions of people walking through. The captivity released from Babylon took place in a couple of phases. It, it almost goes off without a lot of mention, kind of a ho-hum event. People would kind of drift back to Judah, those that wanted to go back. How can this one be so much more impressive than this one? Which then leads us into the other part of the answer here, and this is the one that's told to us grammatically. It's also contextual when you take a look at it from the overall perspective of scriptures, but it's the words that God uses. This word for forget is zakar, and its most literal meaning means to be male. And you might think, how do you get remembrance or forgetting out of to be male? Well, you have to understand the Semitic culture, that a man was most often known by his sons, that property was recognized and marked out because it was handed down from gener generation to generation through the sons. To be male is the way that you recognize the family name, family property, and possessions, and eventually it got to the point where it was used as a word about remembering or forgetting. But what makes it interesting is when it's connected with the other word, former, or first things, it's the Hebrew word rosh, which is most often translated as your head, because it's your first, it's your top thing. But if you go back in its etymology, what it talks about is the very first thing. So it was used to describe somebody's ancestry. And in this case, it talks about the first of a family line. And that's what gives us the overall context of Scripture, because God is saying to Israel, I'm sorry, to the nation of Judah, I want you to forget about this. Not that he wanted them to completely erase it from their memory banks. I want you to stop dwelling on this. I want you to stop going to the past, to that day that I went to your father Abraham and made a covenant with him. When I told him I was going to make this one man into many people and that from his family line would come amazing kings. I want you to forget about that. Well, why would God even say that? Because for too long, Judah had been placing its trust in their heritage. You know, when Isaiah came to them and said, God is going to discipline you because of your rebellion, they said, no way. We're God's chosen people. We're the children of Abraham. God would never do that to us. And when he said, the Babylonians are going to come down and destroy this place, this city and this temple, they couldn't believe it. Because in their minds, a God who made a promise with one nation on the face of the earth would never dare to allow this beautiful temple built to his honor and his name to be destroyed. And yet you heard in our Old Testament lesson, God said, I'm done with this. I'm tired of you going through the motions. I don't want your sacrifices that are offered up with bloody hands because you give me these, these spotless lambs and then you go home and do some of the most evil and sinful deeds. I don't want you to dwell on this anymore. I need you to look ahead to something better. Well, what's God doing with these people? I, I think we get it. The past is great. It's good to have good memories, but it doesn't hold a candle to what the future holds. You know this concept. Which is better, dreaming about going on vacation or actually sitting on the beach enjoying the sun? Which is better, the promise or the fulfillment? Will you marry me, which is great, 
Still remember uh, proposing to my wife, but it doesn't hold a candle to the day that she said, I do. Because all of a sudden, the promise becomes reality. And God says, I need you to quit dwelling on the promise and how I made it through Abraham, and I need you to look ahead to the fulfillment. So what's this all about? Well, the whole study of this Advent lesson is new beginnings. Something different is about to happen. And that's what God describes for these people. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not see it? Do you not perceive it? This word for doing it, it's a very common word. So no big deal there. It's how it's rendered. In the Hebrew language, a participle talks to us about something that is unbroken, an ongoing event. So God is still talking about his plans that he made through the nation of Judah, the promise that he made to Father Abraham. It's just that now, given this other word, tamak, something else is happening. The promise still is in place. I'm still keeping my Messiah promise, but all of a sudden, I'm going to take a hard right turn with you as a nation. Something different is happening. You know, the captivity didn't have to happen. It didn't have to end up being part of the plan. And yet, since Judah decided to rebel against God and his warning fell on deaf ears, God says, I need you to understand that what's about to take place is not as bad as it looks. If we looked at this, according to how the word is actually used, samak, in the life cycle of a plant, it makes perfect sense. The promise was given to Abraham, and that was the beginning of this journey. The fruit of that promise is the fulfillment, which can only take place through Jesus Christ. This word, something new, this springing up, is the germination. Sending these people into captivity in Babylon was going to be the germination stage of this plan, and it was going to render things that would not have otherwise been possible. Not the least of which were wise men from the east who heard about and came to worship the birth of the new king. This change in direction also beautifully sets up the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, who was sent to prepare his people so that they could be ready for the coming of the Savior. Now, we have the ability to see what's going on here because we have hindsight. Judah could not perceive it because they were still looking at events that were yet to happen. And this is where we're at in the history of the promise. The powerful nations of the world, one after another, would fall and give way and would perfectly fit into God's plan of sending a Savior into the world. The release from the land of, of Egypt, the Assyrians had just recently fallen to the Babylonians, even though they had destroyed the northern kingdom of Judah. Now God was going to send Judah into captivity and to Babylonia, which eventually would fall to the Persians and the king of the Persians, whom Isaiah even names when he talks about the hope of restoration, will set you people free, eventually would give way to the Greek nation, and that language would become universal so that the New Testament could be written, so that people could hear about the kept promise of God, and finally... The Romans would conquer the Greeks so that at a certain time, a taxation could be made that would bring one family from Nazareth down to the little town of Bethlehem and so that 33 years later, the capital punishment means was not stoning, but crucifixion. If you're able to step back and see what God is doing with this promise of captivity, but promise of restoration. Everything is falling perfectly into place 
for what we know to be true about God sending Messiah to rescue us. So that on Christmas morning, instead of remembering every last sin, every painful rebellion that brought on this one event in the history of man, finally Judah and all the children of Abraham and every person on the face of the earth, instead of remembering what they did to anger God, could finally and completely forget it. There's something interesting, and I hope we don't miss it, because once again, our Advent study has prepared us a little bit more for the celebration of Christ's birth, and has brought us to this good place, to get ready to celebrate our Savior's birth. I don't know that we can actually do enough study to fully embrace this amazing plan that God crafted for our salvation. But on Christmas morning, we also, like Judah, have the opportunity to forget everything that we have done that required this God to also become human, to be born into our world, and ultimately to be sacrificed for our sin. But what I'm afraid of in these preparations for the celebration of the Christmas season, there might be something else that we overlook or maybe forget. It has to do with the fact that it was Isaiah the prophet who spoke these words, that this promise of Messiah was all about this, to bring us back to what God created us to be, not only his children, but his perfect children, his clean children, his washed children. That's why Isaiah is referred to oftentimes as the gospel of the Old Testament, because if you read through those 66 chapters, it is filled with these little gems and nuggets that long ago, even before the Savior's birth, God was telling this world through his own people, there is something big that's going to happen, and it's going to change your life. It's going to change your eternity. And every week we hear this again and again, and every Christmas we gather to celebrate this amazing miracle of God. But then we forget. And unfortunately, we forget too easy. You see, there's something that gets lost in this forgetting process when it comes to us and God. And it has to do with our sins. Because God lovingly invites us not only to forget what our sins have done and what they have cost him, but he truly invites us to forget what they have done to us and to each other and to this world. You see, God says, I want you to confess your sins. I want to hear you admit that you need me. And when we do that and we trust that that Savior died and washed us clean, as Isaiah tells us, it's the only thing that can wash us clean. When we truly believe that, then God says, I want you to forget what you have done. Unfortunately, oftentimes we carry with us the shame and guilt of our sins. We know they're forgiven. We're assured they're forgiven. We have the body and blood of our Savior that prove to us they are forgiven. And yet we get up and we go home and we have this frustration and this burden of the fact that we can't love our God in the same amazing way that he chooses to love us. Try as we might, as hard as we work at it, as diligently as we study his word, as much as we encourage one another, oftentimes one of the biggest temptations of the devil is to use the shame and guilt of our sin to try and drive a wedge between us and God and us and each other. And then he comes to us as we stew about these things and whispers those tempting words in our ears. Are you really sorry? Are you really forgiven? 
can God really forgive you? As we prepare to celebrate the birth of our Savior, there's something very important we need to understand. In lesson one of this study, I told you there's very few things that God can't do. And in that lesson, I told you one of the things that God can't do is when he makes a promise, he cannot break it. It is not within his divine nature to go back on his word. Well, a few verses after our lesson, Isaiah speaks these words, and it tells us another thing that God cannot do. God says, once I forgive you of your sin, I cannot remember it. God says, as soon as you are forgiven, I have completely forgotten the fact that you are even a sinner. Now, I don't know how that works. I know our God has a perfect mind, and he's all-knowing. I can't, for the life of me, in any human way, explain to you how God can make himself forget the many things that we have done, and yet there are his words. And that's the same word that was in our lesson, zakar. God says, when you are forgiven, I can zakar your sins no more. And so, because I forgive you, maybe it's time that you forgive you. Maybe it's time to let go of the shame and the guilt that caused both the life and death of my son and understand this is an act not because of your sin. This is an act because of my love. And now when I, you get up and go, now you should live in the joy and freedom of that forgiveness. That's the same message that Isaiah got to tell the nation of Judah, and that's the same message that I got to tell you this morning. Now, there's one last thing about this amazing, beautiful Old Testament nugget of the gospel. In the same way that Isaiah had a coal touch his lips that made him clean and enabled him to go out and tell his people the good news of God's promise, this gospel nugget has touched each of our lips and taken away our sins, and has enabled us to be the Isaiahs of today, to go out and tell the people this good news, that they don't need to worry about struggling with that car that breaks down, or that boss that just doesn't get them, or their financial situation. What they need to understand is that they have a God that loves them, and even when something seems to go crazy or haywire, God takes that and makes it part of his plan and lets it bud and sprout into a new direction we could have never imagined. You've heard these words. Now God says, who should I send? I pray to God you don't forget to say these few things. Lord, send me.